Good to see you. We're going to spend some time this morning around the implications of the incarnation of Christ. Would you say that word with me? Incarnation. Let's say it one more time. Incarnation. The incarnation of Christ and the love of God. Here's some scriptures for us to consider. First out of Luke chapter 18, verse 9 and following. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For every one who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then Isaiah in chapter 53 verse 12, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ said, He was numbered among the transgressors. He was numbered among the transgressors. Let's pray together. Lord, would you give energy and anointing to... Your truth, is it lifts up your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, William Wilberforce, a man of privilege, living in England, saw the horrific atrocity of the slave trade, closely linked with the economy of England. It had many supporters and very few detractors. And he started a journey to dismantle the slave trade. For many years, a journey almost traveled alone. In order to comprehend what slaves were enduring and the kind of life they were forced into, he did some research on the slave ships that were coming from Africa up to Liverpool, England. Sometimes journeys that would last nearly two months. And he discovered that in order to get the most possible slaves into a ship, the average space a slave was given for this nearly two-month journey was a space 16 inches wide. They found if they stacked people laying slightly on their side, they could get more people into the hold of the ship. So every person got about 16 inches wide. Five feet, two inches long. So that particularly for the males, most of them had to have their legs slightly cramped for the entire journey. And anywhere from a foot to three feet high. So for most slaves, they could not even fully sit up during that two-month journey. He went to his carpenters and he decided he would have a box built 
the size of the space that a slave would typically have. And he put it in his kitchen. Every so often he would go down and he would lay in that box. And he would remind himself, though he knew that as a man of privilege he could get out any time he wanted. Still, as much as he was able, he would remind himself of what it was like to be for two months in the hold of a ship with that much space to move. Once a neighbor came to the door and the butler, knowing that Wilberforce was in the kitchen, took him down to the, took him down to the kitchen. The man stood there looking for Wilberforce and couldn't find him. The butler thought maybe Wilberforce had gone outside. He went outside and then the neighbor was startled when Wilberforce popped out of this box. And he explained to his neighbor what he was doing. The incarnation of Christ is the Christmas story. It is God in Christ coming in the flesh into our world. So we read in John 1.14, the word became flesh. We read in Romans 8.3, God was sent in the flesh. So it was Jesus, born as a baby, in that stable, in that manger. That's the incarnation of Christ. Taking upon himself our form, deciding this God of the universe, the creator of all things, that he would come and lay in our box. So that the scripture says we now have a high priest who has suffered and been tempted in every point like you. So there is nothing you can bring up. There is no problem. There is no struggle or doubt. There is no sin or result of sin that you've committed or sin or the result of sin, sinned against you, that Jesus Christ himself has not personally experienced. So when you talk to the creator of the universe, he can whisper into your ear, I know. And that's the God we go to. The incarnation of Christ... His coming in human form into our world has at least four qualities to it that have an implication for how we personally can get to God and how we relate to Christ. And we're going to spend a little time on the four aspects of the incarnation and how it relates to us personally. Then we're going to spend a little time on how the body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ who does what Christ would do if he were here in the body. How the body of Christ functions as the incarnation of Christ. Number one. The first element of the incarnation is the Bible says Christ in order to come to this earth and meet you and me had to empty himself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Though he did not think being equal with God was robbery, he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a human being, submitting even unto death. 
That means that there were things about God that if he brought everything he was to this earth, we could not have interfaced with him. We could not have had discussions with him. His glory would have blinded us like Moses who could not even look upon the face of God because of the the shining, overwhelming dimension of his glory. So the Bible tells us that God, Jesus Christ, set set apart part of his glory. He didn't abandon it, he returned to it, but he set apart part of his glory so he could interface with you. Scripture tells us that he set apart part of his position Though he was equal with God, he became a servant. There were elements of who he was that he emptied himself of in order to walk with you. Now, we actually see this. I see Josh Allen and his wife came in with their little baby. We see this in how adults talk to babies. Normally intelligent human beings sometimes responsible for large organizations, the welfare of many people, and huge budgets, will see a baby in a little seat. They'll get down on their hands and knees. They'll begin to speak in tongues. (laughs) They'll change the pitch of their voice. Oh, how are you doing today? Do a little thing, you... Now, interestingly enough, research is showing that the touching of that child and that kind of dialogue, as if we th- were thinking that the baby is thinking, which is not about what we're saying, that that dialogue actually creates a nurturing feeling in the spirit of the child. But the adult is adapting themselves, leaving off part of who they are, they're not getting, they're not sitting in a chair saying, now little Jimmy, I wonder if you've given any thought to Einstein's theory of relativity and his pursuit for a unifying theory of the universe. They're not talking like that because they're trying to relate. You, we leave part of who we are in order to relate to that child. That's what God was doing in Christ in order to be able to communicate with us and he, us with him. As a second element of the incarnation. The incarnation means in his taking our, our form, he responds to the good in us. It means... That even in our sin and the brokenness and fallenness that is part of the lot of humanity. That when Jesus Christ gazes into your eyes, he still sees the shadow of the image of his father. And he responds to the shadow of that image. So one day Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee, to eat. In those days, even though not everybody would eat, people could mill around. They could come into the house, listen to the conversation. It was a very social type of event. So this Pharisee invites Jesus in to eat. People were coming and going. And the Bible says in Luke 7, a woman who was very sinful, most commentators agree that in all likelihood she was a streetwalker or prostitute, 
a woman who was very sinful came in. And she started to weep. And she knelt down and she began to brush the tears from the feet of Jesus. And she had brought an expensive oil in an alabaster container and she began to anoint Jesus and pour it on him. Scripture says that when the Pharisee saw this, he thought to himself, if Jesus knew the kind of woman this was, he would not be letting her touch him. And Jesus, knowing what he thought, turned to the Pharisee and said, When I came in, you did not take off my sandals. You did not wash my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman, this sinful woman, has treated me with this kindness. And when Jesus was trying to explain to his own people what goodness was, he took somebody from a race who would not have even been allowed to touch the bricks of the temple in Jerusalem. And he said, let me tell you about a good Samaritan. The incarnation is Jesus Christ taking the initiative and seeing in you and me the goodness that remains and the shadow of his Father's image in us, though marred, broken, and damaged. The third meaning of the incarnation is he moves towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Christmas story, God with us. The initiative of God to move in our direction and not wait for us to move in His. So one day Jesus is walking through a village and there's a man whose occupation might even be more disreputable than a prostitute in that culture. He was a tax collector serving the Roman oppressors. And nobody would give him any space. It's kind of an interesting thing as you study the Gospels. There were always people trying to keep people away from Jesus. Jesus had to say, no, suffer the little children to come to me. Blind Bartimaeus was trying to get to, get to Jesus. They were holding him away. Zacchaeus couldn't get close and so he climbed up into a tree. And as Jesus walked by in full view of everyone and in their hearing, he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. For I'm going to your house today. It's hard for us in our culture to comprehend how shattering a statement that would have been. To go to someone's house and eat with them was not simply getting a McChicken in the drive-thru in McDonald's. It was a statement of affinity. And that leads us to the fourth characteristic of the Incarnation. He identifies with me. Now lest you and I think that identification with somebody is just somebody saying, Hey, you know what? I, I know that person. I kind of like him. Identifying with somebody 
runs far deeper than that. It means that when you stand in shame, I stand with you in such a way that your shame becomes my shame. That when your reputation is damaged, my alignment with you means that my reputation is damaged as well. Jesus' death on the cross was no death of a saint. It was a sinner's death of shame and humiliation. It means something like this. A mom and a dad have a daughter. For reasons that are inexplicable to her, she takes off into a wild lifestyle. Drugs, alcohol, men. In the midst of this kind of degenerative life, she ends up with an unwanted pregnancy. She has the baby, has little feeling for it, gives it little attention. And then one night, in the midst of her own drunken stupor, she behaves in a way that injures the child, and the child dies. The culture is horrified. We are appalled. Charges are brought, and the legal system cranks into motion. And one day she sits in a courtroom next to her lawyer. And then just behind her, behind the little barrier between the front of the court and where the people sit, there sit a mom and a dad. Bearing the shame, bearing the humiliation, bearing the sulliness, sullied reputation, carrying what her, their daughter carries. That is identification. And when the scripture tells us that Christ was numbered with the transgressors, that he became sin for us, it means that when you looked around for Jesus in the minds of the people, he stood with the sinners as a sinner, bearing that shame and that reproach. That is the incarnation of Christ. And in a crowd of this size, there have got to be some of us who have had moments of excruciating shame, either because of ways we were sinned against or the consequences of our own sin and brokenness. And in that shame, Christ was not out here Observing you, telling you that he would forgive you, he was here next to you experiencing that same shame and carrying the humiliation with him as you carry it. That's what it means when Christ says he is numbered with the transgressors.
Now, interestingly, if you're a believer here this morning, you're part of a church fellowship, we are called the body of Christ. That if Christ were here in the flesh, he would be doing what he now asks the body of Christ, who is here in the flesh, to do. The corporate response, responding incarnationally to the needs of the world for which Jesus has died. And I sadly say to you, that for all the comfort of the incarnation of Christ, when it got translated into the American church, something went badly wrong. Now I normally write my sermons on the back of uh, napkins and stuff like that. But I've written a thing for you because I don't want us to miss the sequence of it. It takes about three minutes and it explains to you what I mean when I say something went wrong. So I'd like to read it to you. It's in the first person as if this were happening to me. Where did we go wrong? I needed salvation, a different life. And then through people and events, I am in a place where I ask the Lord for forgiveness. And I move from death to life, and the Bible tells me that all things have become new. Often I set my course in a new direction. I begin to read and study the Bible, start going to church, get in with a group of Christians. From my reading of Scripture, church, and my Christian friends, I begin to see and adhere to a new set of social and behavioral norms, principles, values, and beliefs that fit and affirm the affinity group I am now part of. Often, without any overt consciousness or malice intent, I begin to require a church culture that affirms my views of spirituality, values, and truths. Affirmation becomes the driving force to seal that this new life is right. I begin to carry a mental yardstick. Measuring activities and statements, behaviors and values, always assessing, evaluating, requiring. I say that I do it because I want to be part of a church that honors Christ, teaches the Bible, and stands up for righteousness. It never occurs to me that perhaps some of my motivation is about affirming my affinity group and protecting my views. After all, they are not my views, they are God's views, aren't they? But somewhere there is a line I don't even see. And one day, I obliviously cross it. Though the rhetoric of my culture and personal walk stay the same, it all actually becomes about me. I need, I want a place that tells me I am right, defends my views, and talks my talk. I grow indifferent perhaps hostile, eventually adversarial towards the world and sinners. Highly sensitized by my adopted culture, I am very aware when someone lets in something that challenges, brings discomfort, or offends my culture. While criticizing the postmodern movement in America, it doesn't occur to me that my chosen culture has been heavily tainted by its predecessor, modernism. It doesn't occur to me because the culture I have created worships at the altar of sureness and it is an emotion that feels right 
and thy reason, aren't we supposed to be sure? I view any invasion as an act of war, and armed with scripture verses and other tools, I push back. I'm standing for what is right. I insist that my kids shouldn't have to come home and ask questions after church. Can't we just focus on scripture and worship the Lord, I say? Such an intrusion is evidence of shallow Christianity, surely. I miss the fact that my view of reality drives people in my own ranks underground when they behave badly. And then one day, my heart utters, even if my lips won't, I'm glad I'm not like them. I would be chagrined to see that the model I have created makes the church a country club, except that instead of a golf course and a pool at the center, it is my ideal of righteous living. The idea that the church is a mash unit near the front lines of a life and death struggle would challenge my need for an infirming culture for myself. The idea that the church is to live outside of home court advantage would be jarring. The fact that most of the early generals of this movement died violently is surely not applicable for today. And perhaps more disturbing would be that the intention of the church is to be a group of prisoners who have escaped bondage and are now returning to the prison to break out their friends at great personal risk. And most disturbing of all, is when I find out at the gates of heaven that it is the ones who left the security of the ninety and nine and went out for the one lost sheep that hear the whisper of the master, well done, thou good and faithful servant. For there is more rejoicing in heaven over the one lost sheep that was found than over the ninety and nine already in the fold. Now in order to explain an absolutely core reality about Journey Church, I want to take about five minutes and explain to you the six kinds of churches there are in the United States. When I explain these, I am, I am explaining six types of churches that all may be bearers of the cross and the glory of Christ, that all may be faithful to the scripture, I am not suggesting that one is superior to another. It takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. But I want us to understand what fuels this enterprise. So let's have a quick look at the six types of churches. There's historical traditional. Traditional just means that history informs heavily how the church views its mandate. Historical traditional are churches that often are driven by practices that are even thousands of years old. Often liturgical, but they don't have to be. They can be like Quaker, which has almost no liturgy at all, a few hundred years old. These churches feel that they find Christ in these forms. Then there's sociological traditional. Sociological traditional are committed to the scriptures and they're committed to Christ, but they just have some ways of doing things. They've seen Christ function and bless these ways in the past, and they like them. They like, let's say for example, they like pews and hymns 
And they like expository preaching. And they like to do communion a certain way. And uh, they have particular doctrines they like to lift up and magnify over above other doctrines. Sociologically traditional. Then there's post-traditional. That's a, that's a church who's in totally in line with the values of the traditional movement, but who know that some things are changing, and so they make some cosmetic adjustments. Like, they might decide, well, we, we probably should sing a couple worship songs because we don't want to lose our young people. And uh, they might decide not to use their organ quite as much. Now, about 50% of the Protestant churches in America are in these last two groups that I just mentioned. The fourth type is the contemporary. They want to be a 21st century church for a 21st century people. They share the values of the traditional church, but they've made certain adjustments. One is they'll often use contemporary music. They'll preach to people's needs. They'll use modern management tools in governing large enterprises, and they elevate the value of evangelism. Then there's the innovative church. The innovative church on the outside looks very much like the contemporary church. But the innovative church is a church that God uses to help Christendom recover something that was lost. So, for example, a few years ago, Robert Schuller began a church that now we know as the Crystal Cathedral in Southern California. He looked at how the church was functioning in America and thought that it was taking the truth and running it out of balance. It was using the model of sin, sinner, and judgment. And he decided that there was another truth in Scripture. By the way, Shul was no lightweight. He did his doctoral work on the Institutes of Calvin, so he knew all about theology. He thought there needed to be emphasis that we were created in the image of God, the dignity of man, and that we aspire because of that creation to partner with God in great enterprise. And he began to preach that way. Now, I could roll off my lips. Many of the greatest churches in America today, whose pastors would point to Robert Schuller is the primary mentor that moved them towards the passion of Christ. Having said that, and I use this word intentionally, for the first 20 years, he was crucified by the church. Then there's Bill Hybels over in, uh, over in Willow Creek in Chicago. Here was his innovation. Non-believers in different times have different ways they'll come into the church, entry points, to investigate the claims of Christ. In the 40s and 50s, it was a Sunday evening worship service. 50s and 60s, it was Sunday school. 60s and 70s, it was small group ministries outside the church. But by the early 90s, the primary way that a non-believer would check out the claims of Christ and the church was on weekend worship services. So Bill Hybels' innovation was to say that at the point of the primary entrance spot of the non-believer, the opinion and experience of the non-believer superseded the opinion and experience of the believer. And for 20 years, though that message eventually percolated all through the church, 
teaching the church to pay attention to what non-believers and sinners were feeling. He was vilified. He built a church building that had no religious icons. It was theater seating so that a non-believer who was accustomed to going to a concert could step into that building and feel no confusion about being in some foreign environment. And their conviction was that allowed them to preach with clarity and without confusion the claims of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And then there's the postmodern church. Now the, the innovative church carries most of the traditional values, but it challenges about 15% of the values that the church has gotten accustomed to. That means about 15% of the time it's making somebody mad. The postmodern church, and Brian McLaren and others, they feel the statistical data shows that the American church is just entirely broken, and they're challenging about 85%. I tell you all that to tell you this. Journey Church is an innovative church. That's its category. And here's its innovation. Journey Church is not interested in simply ministering to the sinner in the steps of Jesus it wants to identify with the sinner being numbered with the transgressors. Now, even Brian doesn't know this. <laughs> he's going he's to listen to this message and he's going to discover what fuels the enterprise that he's been leading because he's never articulated this. I've just watched him and us over the last three years. Brian is driveled, driven by an unbridled compassion. Almost careless compassion. Some of us who have some sense, like John and I, <laughs> will, will pull him aside and say, Brian, you can't do that. That's a bridge too far. Nobody's going to even understand it. You've got to bring people along slower. But make no mistake that his compassion is the driving force of the reason he is in ministry. So let's finish up by taking these four traits of the incarnation that are to be exhibited in the body of Christ and I want to show you how they show up here. Can we do that? The first trait, he emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2.7. It means that there are times in order to interface with the world, the community, the sinner, we actually take things that are our right, our birthright, and we set them aside following in the steps of Jesus so that they are no impediment to our meeting someone for whom Jesus died. And so, this shows up, among other ways, in a community center. We're building a building. 
We have every right for it to be our building. There's nothing sinful about that or wrong. Or we can treat it like it's a gift to the community. And we can remove anything that stands in the road of them feeling like this is theirs. One day Brian came into my office and he said, Should we put a cross on our building? Now, I've been a believer for almost 50 years. And I know what the cross means to us who are believers. And we can put a cross on our building and be perfectly fine and God will be happy with it. But we can also, in the footprints of Jesus, empty ourselves of something we have a right to do. And not put a cross on it if we choose. Not as any compromise or trite action, but as a declaration to our Savior that we stand with Him in emptying ourselves out so that we might connect with the people for whom Jesus died. And so I said to him, we can put a cross on it and we can defend it from Scripture. Or we cannot put a cross on it and we can defend it from Scripture. But as soon as we put a cross on it, we've told everybody that it's ours. And the second element of the incarnation is that we see the good in others. Not just in other believers, but in we, we expect the gospel and truth to be just bubbling up into people's lives, whether they're believers or non-believers, because we see the grace of God at work, even in pre-believers. And so, here at Journey, it looks uh, something like this. Now, you know, I really dislike about half of what we do. <laughs> you know, I haven't got past the Beach Boys. And I like to listen to Gaither. And, and I don't come here because this place fits my style, however ancient my style may look. I come here because this place fits my mission. And I let mission trump my style. And so, play rock because we can find the word and grace of God even in, surprisingly, this music. <laughs> do, you, do you know that I, a couple of years ago, I watched a movie. I, I bought this movie called The Kid. It stars Bruce Willis. And when I got done, I thought this. It has been years since I have seen such a level of spiritual understanding as is depicted in this film. How in the world could a non-believer from Hollywood grasp a level of spirituality that many Christians could not comprehend? Bruce Willis 
So we see the good in others. And we move towards people. And so here at Journey, it looks kind of like this. The Sweet Pea Festival. And you know, the Sweet Pea Festival, is no, it's no revival meeting. It's not a spiritual enterprise. Why would we expend gobs of volunteers for that? Because they are us. They are us. And we move towards people to affirm and to love them. As a natural exp- expression of the humanity we share even with Jesus. And finally, we identify with them. Numbered. Numbered with the transgressors. Why would a church that believes the Bible with its whole heart ever have a series where one of its primary illustrations was Michael Jackson and some of the dysfunction of his life? I'm glad I'm not like him. One of the greatest churches in America is Symbolist Church in Brooklyn Tab, Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York. Started out with a little group of barely 25 and they just started praying. And God started to explode their ministry and they began to work with lots of people in New York from the wealthiest to the poorest. So all kinds of people would come into their building. It got so successful that they would put on conferences and pastors would come from all over the United States to hear Symbola talk. He got busy. He was important. He was needed. One Sunday evening, he had plenty to do. They finished a service. He had preached. He gave an altar call. People came forward. He thought, I have time to pray with a couple of them. Other people can pray with the rest. He prayed with a couple. He was going to head off to his meeting. When a homeless man came late to the altar... He felt the impulse he should go pray with him. But he had meetings to go to and things to do. But he felt the check of the Holy Spirit. And so reluctantly, even irritatingly, he walked up, sat down. The man just reeked. He recoiled, even as the Lord impressed him to put his arm around him. And then he said, in the midst of all of his success, of what was happening, the Lord said to him, Simbola, this is the smell I died for. And when you and I think that there's some odors that we won't let in here, It is we who are lost. Because Jesus did not stand here and say, I'm righteous and I'm glad I'm not like you. He stood here and he was numbered with the transgressors.
Well, let's put our things aside as we finish up. Would you join me and let's just bow our heads to pray? And Nobody's looking around, but could I ask you as we pray, there might be some of us here who are in a place of shame in our life. Circumstances and people and choices have left us in a very difficult place. And this morning the Lord has slipped up next to you and told you that he stands with you. And you can say with the tax collector who went to the temple, God be merciful to me a sinner, I need your help. And if you need his help this morning, would you just say that? Just in your prayer to him, God be merciful to me, I need your help. And uh, if you're praying that, we're not looking around and nobody's going to embarrass you. But just to honor the Lord, the one who wants to stand by you at this moment. If you're praying that, would you just slip your hand up and put it down and honor him? Say, I'm doing that. Yeah, all through here in the middle, over here on my left. Through the middle in the back, over on my right. You bet. Way over on my right. Up here on my right, you bet over on my left now uh, to you who are like me been a believer for years the Lord has whispered to you as he has whispered to me will you be numbered with the transgressors following in the steps of Jesus. If you'd like to pray and just say, Lord, I'm not even sure what that looks like, but I want to follow in your footsteps. So would you show me how to be the body of Christ and how to be numbered with the transgressors so that the one lost sheep can be found. And you can pray that. That's where you're at. If you're praying that this morning, just to honor the Lord, would you slip your hand up and put it down and say, I, I'd like the Lord to help me with that. Over here on my left, all through the center, in the back, yeah. Here on my right, dozens and dozens of us. Father, thank you for the salvation that comes to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. For these who slip their hands up because they need your mercy and help, I pray that you'll rush that to them. For those of us who walk with you, I pray that you'll grip us with your heart for the lost sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Brandon's going to lead us in a couple worship songs as we conclude. Could I say something to you? I've been preaching for over 35 years. I've preached over 1,500 sermons. This theme of being numbered with the transgressors
has totally disheveled my spirit. And I don't know what it is, but there is something about that theme that's as close to the heart of Jesus as anything I've ever touched in my life. Thank you.